0: everybody and welcome to goddard in the world podcast my name is sam Rebeline and i am here on this beautiful day with uh my amazing co-host amanda faye laxon hi amanda
1: hi sam how you doing
0: good how are you doing
1: i'm good it's been a little busy and hectic um I guess we just said that yesterday <laughs> but, uh, we re- we recorded another podcast yesterday and we we're talking about busyness and hecticness. Um, but, um, yeah. yeah, apparently that's the way of the world right now. Uh, so what are you S- going to do? It was like
0: everybody's busy, <laughs> right. you know, the summer has been crazy for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um again, you know, my therapist says that everybody's everybody's feeling like they're going through a big change this year. So sweet listener, if you feel <laughs> that way, you're not alone.
1: I love it um, when you say sweet listener, like like this is like an <laughs> after dark podcast.
0: <laughs> I know, like Delilah or whatever. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah definitely. Oh shoot. What what's her name? It's just Delilah, right? Like
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know her last name. Like I don't smooth, even know if that's her real.
1: Yeah. Did we have a conversation? I feel like we had a conversation about this, but I definitely used to listen to Delilah. She is very syndicated. Um, so yeah, Yeah. um, probably anywhere in the U S that you're listening to this, you've heard of delilah i would imagine
0: and if you haven't i feel sorry for you yeah i you I don't know see her out.
1: like she's she's a great radio host
0: like. yeah. if i'm driving alone at night she's absolutely back up too, for sure. absolutely
1: yeah. yeah
0: um but uh we're not here today with delilah we're here no. today <laughs> uh, uh a, f- a friend of mine and a fellow um MFAW grad mm-hmm. um we i I think we were talking about this recently, and I don't remember exactly what we decided. But I think you we overlapped by like two semesters. You graduated a year and a half after me, Miriam. I think so. About that. Well, uh, let me tell you about her. Miriam B. C. Tobin is our guest today. She is a Seattle-based playwright, theater artist, and writing instructor. She has performed on stages across the U.S. and Europe and taught drama to youth in Seattle, NYC, Denver, and on a farm in the Czech Republic. She founded MBCT, Modern but Classical Theater in NYC, to de- and reconstruct classic plays into highly physical adaptations. Oh my gosh, I got so excited, I <laughs> whacked my mind. I <laughs> Her play, The War of Women, received a roundtable reading at the Lark, and several of her plays premiered at Goddard College's 10-Minute Play Festival. Awards include a pen writing scholarship, the Newington Cropsey Fellowship, uh, and the London Dramatic Academy Fellowship. Miriam was the fall 2020 editor-in-chief of the Pickin Review and is currently a dramatic writing editor with The Clockhouse. Her work appears in multiple issues of the Pickin and Smith & Krause. She was a semifinalist for Pipeline Theater's 2021-22 to 22 Play Lab and a 2021 Writer-in-Residence at Hedgebrook. Miriam also runs Scrib Lab, a writing organization aimed at creating community through experimentation, and she won a Goddard Alumni Association Spirit Grant to continue her work with Scrib Lab. It's Miriam Tobin. Hi, Miriam. Hi. How are you doing today?
2: I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, kind of early here in the West Coast, and I'm, I'm feeling good to spend my morning with the two of you.
0: Oh, nice. Well, I'm excited you're here. I'm. This is such a, like, all over the place in a best, like, so many things. You've done so many things um, all over the world. <laughs> and um, I wonder, like, how did you start getting involved in so much theater stuff? Like, what's an early experience being on the stage or writing for the stage that you remember that got you really jazzed about theater?
2: Yeah. I mean, I was definitely one of those kids who just participated in every play I could since I was a little tiny kid. I remember when I was um, three, the high school was doing Fiddler on the Roof and they needed some very small children to just run across the stage at one point. <laughs> and I wore as many layers of clothes as possible, just like, like, you know, four of my mom's sweaters type of thing and just ran across the stage screaming and they were all like, whoa, that three-year-old really uh, showed up for this show. I was just supposed to run. I wasn't supposed to be screaming. Um, she can really project. Yeah, I can project, <laughs> yes. But I think it was... Um, I always think about this experience in high school when In my public high school, by the time you're a senior, you can there's a one-act play festival. And you can write and direct one of the one-acts if you've been doing theater for a couple years. And everybody who could directed a little one-act, you know, like a 20, 30-minute thing. And they gave us a big bulk of published one-acts. And they were like, choose one that has the right size cast and we'll work with you on it. And I was like, I am not taking something that's published i am going to write something amazing and so i wrote this gothic horror version of sleeping beauty where she doesn't wake up and so then she goes to hell and the princess to follow her down the hill, and it's like a whole thing and he goes to kiss her and realizes he doesn't like kissing and like what's he gonna do because now he's in hell and he's got undead princess (laughs) and they, they let him get away with it and um i just had this moment of well now i'm graduating and I thought I wanted to be an actor, but I think I actually, there's something bigger and better for me in the storytelling world <laughs> where I, I can just write these, you know, extremely dramatic, highly imaginative, crazy pieces. And I and I also really loved the adaptation part of it, that I could take something that exists and reimagine it and still get to the essence of what I think the story, or the, in that case, the fairy tale was saying, but in my own way. Yeah. I was going to
0: ask why, um, not to interrupt, but why Sleeping Beauty drew you to that particular fairy tale?
2: Um, It it was Maleficent. It was the villain. Mm. I really Mm -hmm. wanted to tell a story where a villain, I remember thinking, so I cast someone who presented male in that role and I was, I wanted to say something about gender. I don't know what, I was 17, so I don't know what I was trying to say. I don't know if I knew at the time what I was trying to say, but I was trying to make some sort of point. But I remember thinking villains are so, you know, evil and villainous in fairy tales. But what if they're even worse? What if they're even more, Mm -hmm. the evil is even more evil? What if it's like truly from our nightmares? And I remember asking, we had such a limited costume budget. It was like, you know, $40 or such. And I remember asking them, okay, well, I'm not going to use the costume budget on clothes. Can I use it on makeup? And they were like, okay, whatever. Sure, Miriam, whatever you're about to do. So I just thought, black clown makeup and painted like ivy leaves on this poor kid's like feet all the way up to his head and just so that it looks like he was a completely you know trapped in ever growing ivy
1: and oh i remember
2: God. my high school teacher the the director asking what are what are you doing like what is the what are you trying to accomplish here because then we put a costume on top of them you couldn't see the leaves And I was like, but he knows. He knows that he's been eaten alive by the forest. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Character will always, you know, the the actor knows that his character is being swallowed by the forest, even if no one else knows. Cool. There was just something so intriguing to me about going deeper into a story and that a fairy tale like Sleeping Beauty provides usually a lovely story, semi lovely story about, you know, beautiful princess who's put to sleep and then can only be woken up by love. And I was like, well, let's take away love being a factor at all. And she's going to go do her own thing. And she just doesn't wake up. So where would she go? I mean, realistically, if you never wake up, where do you go? You go to death. And in this world, <laughs> there's a hell and the prince is, you know, going to believe in love. And so he's going to follow her to hell. And that's the story I am going to tell and I think I just haven't stopped telling that story
0: since. Mm. Oh, interesting. Can you s- say more about that? So how is <laughs> how is your work grown out of that? And you were, um, before I very rudely interrupted you, <laughs> you were <laughs> talking about how, like, that work then grew into like, okay, I'm going to do more. Like, how did you start doing more than, quote unquote, just acting, like, with that s- story? I guess it's like two questions at one. Like, how did you keep writing? And how did that story keep coming into the story of how you kept writing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I went off to college and I was studying theater. I was a double major in theater and Spanish literature. And so I was reading these really grand novels, right? Like Golden Age Spain provided some really epic, dramatic, melan- Kali stories. Um, and then I was studying theater and, you know, I was auditioning as an actor, but I was constantly gathering other theater majors together and being like, let's put on a thing. Let's do a play. Let's do a um, something. And my senior year of college, I gathered, I think it was six of us, seven of us, um, theater majors together, and we put on a huge one act festival. I sort of recreated what we had been doing in high school and managed to get everybody. Honors like the college gave all of the theater majors who were involved in this festival uh, honors at graduation for doing this huge thing. Wow, except for me because I was a rebel and dropped my theater major three weeks before graduation to show them. <laughs> oh, no, them.
0: And then they showed you, think,
2: though. Oh, <laughs> yeah. They showed me. So I have my you know undergrad in Spanish after. Um, after rebelling against my theater major. But I was like, what what are the stories that I want to tell and that others want to tell? And it's not just in being an actor, it's not just in directing. For me, it's always been this holistic storytelling experience. Not just writing the plays, but having conversation. You know, when I work with actors now and I worked with them in the past, even when it's been a published play, I'm just really I always talk about the essence of the play. Which I'm not sure if that's the same as the playwright's intent, but I talk about the essence, like the emotional, experiential essence of this story, and how can we go further into that? So it comes out for me as sometimes an adaptation or reimagining of the story, and sometimes it's in the way that I work, the physical way that I dig into the story in the rehearsal room. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that, yeah, I think that experience like ripping apart a fairy tale and then putting it back together made me realize that I'm not just when I, I I then went to grad school after undergrad for many years later, but for directing and that I wasn't really interested in just directing someone else's play, that I was really interested in retelling stories and reimagining them and Mm -hmm. then being able to direct them the way that I reimagined them. But there's no break between the writing, the directing, the performance. It's all one theatrical, artistic endeavor.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I really resonate with that because I've been thinking about that a lot in my own prose work. Like where does the line between prose and dramatic writing exist really? If if it does, you know, uh, like a lot of my short stories are really long monologues. Like they're in first person and, um, you know, they're very it, like impersonal and sort of intimate in the story, in the way that they are telling the stories. Like it's a confessional, you know? Yeah. I, I love that. Cause that's how I started to feel too, where I'm like, why I want to like, how can I make this whole thing? My story. I don't have a question attached to that. I just, yeah,
1: <laughs> no, like, <laughs> like that resonates. I, yeah, that resonates with me as well. I am part of this writing group here in New York um, through a, uh, theater company called playful substance and one of the things that i've always admired about uh, their mission and what they what they turn out in in writers group is that the both the play and the sense of humor um are are used to explore these like deep and dark emotions human emotions and truths Mm -hmm. and i was reading through your playwriting website and I love all the descriptions. I'm like, I want to read all of these plays, <laughs> like, and the adaptations, like, cause you have it organized that way. And you describe yourself as a contemporary absurdist. So can you talk a little bit about what that means to you, the absurdity
2: um, and how it informs your work? Yeah. Um, it's so funny you're bringing this up because I think about my personal identification as an absurdist all the time because when I apply for programs and send my plays out I always have to say up front hey I'm a contemporary absurdist you are not getting realism from me you are not getting natural some of my dialogue is naturalistic but you're not getting naturalism from me like rocks will start speaking Mm -hmm. and the heavens will literally split in half and Mm -hmm. like things will happen that are just this is not a living room drama yeah, so when I think of absurdism, I think of two definitions for the word. There's like absurdism as in, "Oh my gosh, that thing you did was so absurd." Right? It was so silly, it was so ridiculous. Um, and then the the movement of absurdism in literature, right? We think of like Lewis Carroll and the Alice novels. Sure. They're absurd. And when you he's he writes in nonsense, when you read them, he physically plays with where things are placed on the page there's this wonderful speech by the mouse in i don't remember which of the novels if it's through the looking glass or maybe it's just um wonderland but the mouse speaks on the page and his dialogue just trails off into this tiny little um you know the the font gets tinier and tinier Mm -hmm. as the mouse i think it's the mouse wanders and i remember reading that as a kid and just being so fascinated that you can use nonsense and silliness on the page to make a point um and then there's absurdism in theater. So theater of the absurd, which is where I think I'm more coming from, which is absurdism with a capital A, mm. is a term that was um, defined by Martin Eslin in the mid-century, in the 1950s, I want to say. And playwrights like Samuel Beckett, who's the most well-known absurd playwright, were using absurdism, not to be ridiculous and silly, but to make a point about quote-unquote man, like human's existence. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where I'm coming from, is that absurdism is this idea or this concept of what happens when a human faces the greater universe. And it is that space in between of I am a small little human and the devastation of seeing the great, great expanse of the universe. And so I'm working in that meeting place of the individual versus the all. Mm-hmm. So when I think of absurdism I'm really thinking of devastation and what you said before is perfect um Amanda about things being ridiculous like you were saying that they're using the theater companies using ridiculousness and humor mm-hmm. to um meet greater truths that's mm-hmm. exactly the space I play and Sam and I have talked about this because he's a horror writer and I consider mm-hmm. myself a writer of the grotesque and I'm always talking about Writing things that are really dark and devastating and terrifying, in a but and and grotesque in a really ridiculous way, using humor to exemplify what we don't want to face ourselves Mm -hmm. or facing something so devastating that all you can do is laugh. Mm -hmm. Or as an audience, they're just it's just so ridiculous. You go too far into the dark and you come out in the light. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I try to make Maleficent such a scary. Horrifying villain, and then all you know, you wind up doing is going, "Ah, I wouldn't mind having tea with that lady, right?" And so, and it's just this idea—it's this circle of dark and light that are just ever repeating and and overlapping with one another. I think that's the space of absurdism I play in, mm-hmm. and I also sometimes just write nonsense. <laughs> <It's>
1: <laughs> when, just when you were talking about like rock starting to speak and the heavens opening up, I, it really. Reminded me of uh, my Greek tragedy class in college, um, but specifically the Bacchae, um, and I I can't remember exactly like why. <laughs> like I, I don't know why it, it that resonated specifically, but I remember my professor talking about how th- there is no like moral order. <laughs> To the universe, and that's what it, like I, I for that's Euripides' vision is that there's no actual like the bad guys, so to speak, don't get punished um mm-hmm. as opposed to like in the Oristia or like Aeschylus and like like Oedipus Rex or whatever, you know, like later <laughs> those you know, and then you know of course, there's like Aristophanes that there's humor but um, so it, it seems like what you're talking about it, is actually like a very like even though theater of the absurd was like a very specific movement with Samuel Beckett, it seems like it's also very old at the same time. And when you're talking about like an individual facing the universe, that's very old <laughs> as, a, yeah. as a concept, for sure.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I Yes, you're right on it. I have always said that my plays I've always related to the classics more than the contemporaries mm-hmm. for sure. And, and I, I mean, we're all just still writing the same themes we wrote millions of years ago. Right. We're still trying to like understand what love is. And we're trying to figure out how we relate to one another in the universe around us. But there's something about classic Greek and Roman and Um, Just the, you know, the plays of the ancients, Mayan theater, the way that they are trying to relate to nature and to the planet and the universe that is highly musical and highly dramatic. You know, I, I, I don't mind a living room drama every once in a while. But the thing that I'm missing is that moment when, you know, how many times have we seen the play with the family around the table and somebody... Tells a secret and everyone, oh, and now the play takes a turn because the secret is revealed. Cool. But in the world, in the plays that I love, in the worlds that I hearken back to, right, like the Greeks, mm-hmm. the secret is revealed and there is an earthquake. Right? <laughs> right. Medea <laughs> literally is a sorceress and burns yeah. the town of Colchis down. Mm-hmm. right because she is angry because her husband is marrying someone else right out of love and jealousy she literally sets an entire town on fire um that is more interesting to me to create atmosphere as character right mm-hmm. to to treat the environment around us as emotionally invested in the journey of the protagonist that's as that's more interesting to me than oh no grandma told the secret and everybody gasps yes! and then the curtain falls. And then in Act 2, we're going to find out, you know, the resolution of the secret. Okay, I don't... But man, if there was an earthquake and swallowed Grandma
0: whole, yeah, I'm in. I love this. It's so interesting what you say about the environment and the atmosphere of being a character. Maybe that's why so many burn... Maybe that's why so many buildings burn down at the end of stories. Like, there's this sense of, like, okay, now that the story is done, the place is done, too. You know, I feel like Mm so many narratives Mm -hmm. end with flames or floods, you know the thing—the submarine always sinks, or the you know building always explodes. <laughs> There's always some like destruction of the place at the end of the story. Not always, but I think often, you know, when the place itself is a character, the place mm-hmm. also feels the the end of the story. But um, so, yeah, I think that's all really fascinating. And so, how did Goddard come into your journey through these? like metaphors becoming solid absurdist work.
2: Yeah. Goddard was an interesting experience for me because I already had a master's that was very rigorous and very focused on scholarship. It was indirecting, but it was, um, very scholarly based. And coming to Goddard, I was expecting that same model, which is ridiculous because every school is so different and I knew what Goddard was, but, um, so when it was time to think of my thesis at Goddard, I wanted to do something that pushed me as a writer because I was there for playwriting. I wanted to push myself further than I had pushed myself in a play before, um partially because I wanted to prove to myself that I was earning an MFA, and partially just cuz like what else is grad school for if it's not to experiment? And I wanted to I knew I wanted to write a play that was at least half in verse, if not all in verse. That was just, um, when I write plays, every time I write a new play, I give myself a linguistic challenge. And I try to look at the play I wrote before and choose something I haven't done yet. So before Goddard, I had written a, what I think is probably a six and a half to seven hour play. So I knew I didn't want to do that again. And that play had verse in it. And I told myself the next play would be predominantly in verse. So I already had that challenge and I was just, I I just was like, what would really push me? What would be like a meaty, worthwhile project to spend two years of rigor on at grad school? So interestingly, because here I'm talking about not realism, I wanted to, I, I told myself that I had to focus on an emotion that was like real to me, an experience that was somehow real to me, even though the play I wrote at Goddard was completely absurd. Um, and my partner had gone through chemo several years before, and I had known that I I needed to process how I had felt as a partner to that, um, years later. And so I took that experience of what I had seen him go through, what I felt I went through and put it into a story that's completely divorced of our true experience, except for the emotions that came from it. So, yeah, I think Sam Goddard for me was just an extension of the work I was already doing, except. It was such a luxury to have two years to, to work on a play in a way I hadn't done before. I'm used to writing a play. You know, plays are 90 to 120 pages and you, you know, you write until you're done and then you go back and edit however many times. And that doesn't take me years. And I said then at Goddard, I wrote, it was four acts and I was like, great. And, or I'm sorry, it's three acts, an act a semester. So I wouldn't allow myself to go. Once I finished an act, I didn't allow myself to go past it or think past it. Because I wanted to luxuriate in every single page. I wanted to give every scene the same amount of time. So I did an act, an act, an act. And then obviously fourth semester was going back and making sure they were all the same world.
0: Wow. And and so how did you first hear about Goddard?
2: The internet, I believe. I, um, <laughs> I had applied for... Directing and then playwriting MFA programs several years before, and, and had gotten into Columbia for playwriting a couple wow. years before. I know it sounds so fancy, but at the time I was living in Denver and I didn't want to go back. I had lived in New York for a really long time. I didn't want to go back to New York and I wasn't sure if Columbia was the right program for me. I flew out there for an interview and all that fun stuff. And I had said no to them. And then a couple years go by and I'm living in Seattle. And I I was like, I do want my MFA. I need to do low residency. I had a full-time job throughout Goddard. I couldn't leave it. And I just Googled it. And so I Googled um, low residency writing programs and put the pool of them together. And then weeded out the ones that don't do playwriting and narrowed it down to like four, (laughs) maybe five. And then said, I don't want some of the programs are playwriting and screenwriting together. I was like, well, I don't want screenwriting. And so then we got to Goddard.
0: (laughs) Cool. Wow!
2: Yeah, it wasn't very imaginative of a process.
0: (laughs) So
1: what was the play that you ended up writing for your thesis project?
2: Um, It's called Redundancy. It's like a Mm -hmm. two and a half. Actually, I had a reading of it and Sam read in it. um, Oh, great. (laughs) After I graduated. Yeah. Um, It's called Redundancy. And it's a story of a, a woman who wakes up in the middle of the night in the middle of the woods. And she has no idea who she is or how she got there. And in front of her is a huge cave Cave that yawns open and she just goes into the cave to figure out what's going on. And it's the story of her traveling through the tunnels of the cave. Um, and there are all these obstacles in the way. And there's a chorus of witches that follows her throughout it. And as she travels through, she starts to remember who she is. And the witches tell you up front she's dead and she's been traveling through this cave probably thousands of times. And um, they're not going to sort of let her die in peace until she embraces who she was in life. So she has to go through the cave and um, starts to remember that she was that she had died of colon cancer and she had no real family or friends around her. She died alone and um, and it's the journey of her finding enlightenment by the end. Mm-hmm.
0: But also, like her journey through the cave is her journey through her own body, sort of, right? Like, there's a yeah. whole other layer to this play that <laughs> <laughs> just like <laughs> it's colon cancer, and so yeah, the cave mimics
2: the bowels. Of the oh, humanity. amazing! There's a lot of poop jokes. <laughs> oh, sweet!
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's like dripping. The, like the cave is dripping, right? And yeah. um, I, you told me the witches are like these bats. If I'm remembering right, this yeah, is like... Yeah, the
2: witches look like these huge... Yeah, the witches look like huge bats that follow her around. And they're a chorus and they speak in verse. And they um, they take on different characters that travel with her through the cave. Yes. And then the end of the play, at the very end of it, there's a very long scene where she finally decides to accept that she's dead. And she's very she finds peace in that there's a long scene without any text where her and the cave have a conversation through sound. Um, mm. And it's all the sounds the body makes in death. So they're mm. like, speaking and rattling and groaning and moaning and sighing her in the cave. And it's, um, and I wrote that because originally I thought I was writing an opera. So mm. this would have been the final aria or duet, but I realized I don't know how to write an opera. Um, <laughs> But I knew that I wanted the play to end in an operatic fashion. So it ends in choreographed sound between her and the cave. And the cave then, yeah, well, it's spoiled. Or the cave's walls dissolve and turn into a um, a garden mm. and flowers and greenery. Everything grows around her and she lays down in this field of, mm. of living, beautiful plants. and can finally be at peace. Mm.
0: Wow. And is this the project that you came into Goddard with? Like, did you think that this would be your thesis or did it really morph over time?
2: I came into Goddard knowing that I wanted to write an opera.
1: <laughs> and then
2: <laughs> and then that turned into an operatic play when I mm-hmm. realized opera was a challenge that I was not going to take on. That's all I knew. I knew I wanted to write mostly in verse. I knew I wanted to somehow address the experience of watching my partner go through chemo and I knew that I wanted the play to have an operatic feel to it but like the actual plot and the characters those came through um just goddardness yeah goddardness goddardness
0: making
1: you think about yourself and life and (laughs) <laughs> all of that good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you should definitely write an opera. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, figure it out. <laughs> you already wrote in verse, and you know, th- because you all you said before <laughs> that the play that you had written right before that was six to seven hours long, and that yeah. already feels like. And the themes that you discuss feel very operatic and big.
2: I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you can find me a, what do they call those? A composer, composer, artist. yeah, send yeah. Them away.
0: Okay. <laughs> right. We'll keep an ear to the ground. Yes, yeah, sure. definitely. He- hear any operas stomping <laughs> closer? <laughs> <laughs> the stampede is heading. Um, do you have? um works that really inspired you as you were working on this play at Goddard? I mean, I discovered so much cool stuff at Goddard, like classics that I had known about for years and never gotten a chance to read, and then works that were new to me that are now favorite authors. Um, Did you get a chance to discover things that were influential in a positive way?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I, um, I had one advisor for three semesters. I started with Dara and then I had Rogelio for three semesters. And so he really, we really got to know each other, Rogelio and I, and I said to him pretty much at the outset, I don't want to read. I don't want to read many contemporary plays. I really want to read the plays that nobody else is studying now. So non-Western, um, and pre 20th century. So he dug deep and, um, gave me a really awesome list. I mean, I did write, read plenty of plays that are currently going on. But I read, um, what was it, second semester when we write the big 20-page critical essay? Oh, sure. Yeah. sure.
0: Uh, I think, isn't it just called the long critical paper, LCP?
2: Yes, that like, one. Like, very
0: technical title. <laughs> the long
2: critical, not the short yeah. critical. Um, right. I don't remember how I got onto this topic or I think Rogelio must have recommended these plays to me, but I was reading an ancient Mayan play, a pre-Columbian play. And I was also reading some Japanese no drama. Mm. And Mm. somehow in my mind, those two things totally went together. And so I wrote an essay on the relation between how both, both of those eras in playwriting deal with time and space in, in performance or presentation. Interesting. And I think that was actually the biggest influence on my thesis moving forward because I had to dig so deep into what was going on. But in pre-Columbian drama, from what we know of it, and in no drama, they're often using ceremonial song and dance and um, presentation to tell story in, in ways that we aren't doing in contemporary American theater. So presentation meaning like marching through the town to the performance space, right? And that parade that gathers community and has song and dance and chant and storytelling is part of the presentation. You're already telling the play before you even get to what we call the stage. Mm. Um, And I loved that. I loved this idea of community marching towards celebration, even though the story they were telling was the play I was reading was of warriors um, and war. And yeah, just this and and no theater too. No theater often is telling story where time isn't chronological. They're not saying okay, once upon a time and then this thing happened and then the play ends. They're re- using repetition and they're using song and dance and they're using sound and they're using movement to repeat story or bits of story over and over because um, story lives not in the telling right now. It's not, I bought a ticket to the theater and then I sit in the proscenium and the the grand drape opens and I watch a play and the grand drape closes and then I clap and I go home and that was theater. Theater or drama or story or presentation or performance, whatever we want to call it, is my life and your life and this story we all know because we tell stories and we live in stories and then we all gather together in the quote unquote theater and somebody represents or performs or presents parts of this story that we already know Mm. in a theatrical way right song and dance is theatrical and then we go home but the stories don't end because then maybe we tell the story in a different way next time and that was so inspirational to me that in american theater it really seems like we uh we we go the the event of theater just ends right the curtain ends and we clap and then we go have a drink mm-hmm. and that's not mm-hmm. perfect, right and so yeah. i'm constantly thinking about the event around the play and as a playwright i can only write you know from page one to page whatever um and hope that when it's produced there's more events so what i I'm sorry, I just realized I'm totally babbling. But nope. <laughs> I, <Fair> I, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm trying to do is say, I'm a playwright. I'm I'm, re- I'm using my laptop to write the story then I'm going to print it out. Oh, I don't have a printer. I'm going to email it and then you're going to go produce it. So I have to build as much event into the pages that I have mm-hmm. because I can't dictate how you, the theater company, are going to like present mm-hmm. around the play. Yeah. But I can create an atmosphere within the play that is highly theatrical and represents more than just like a couple characters having a conversation. This play has to hold a whole universe in it. So I'm going to build a cave, but tell you that this cave is a metaphor for what's happening inside a woman's body. And inside the metaphor is another metaphor, right? Like inside her own grief and death is a memory of when she was alive. And in that memory of being alive is sadness. And in that sadness is joy. And I just want to build layer upon layer so that we're not just telling the story of a woman who died and can't let go. We're telling the story of a universe, Mm. right? Um, So, yes. Mm. (laughs) That's
1: that's deeply fascinating. When you interrupted yourself to say that you were babbling, I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm I'm like hanging on to every word. <laughs> but, uh, my nephew was just here. Uh he is uh, finishing up his degree this year um at Florida State in stage managing. He is graduating and he 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 was just up here this summer cuz he was doing um an internship in actually like the Syracuse area um, at at a theater there um, in stage management. And so he came here before and after and he always goes to see like a bunch of shows. (laughs) Oh, I'm in New York City. Sorry. (laughs) I don't know if I told you that, Miriam. (laughs) But um, yeah, so he always goes to see a bunch of shows and um, usually he sticks to Broadway and I've encouraged him to like, you know, check out others, you know, just in case, you know, or whatever, like whatever he's drawn to. But um, he decided to go see Sleep No More, um, which I haven't seen yet. But I, I saw him at right after he had seen it because we went to dinner and then we were going to Shakespeare in the Park. <laughs> so so I saw him right after he'd seen it. He's like... I. I can't even (laughs) he was just he was just so excited about it this like immersiveness there's no dialogue actually and it's a lot of movement and uh, for those of you who don't know it's based on Macbeth um, but it's kind of free form like you can you can go throughout this like very Cool, creepy hotel in downtown New York. Um, and follow a character like Lady Macbeth. You follow her around, and th- you can open all these drawers. He's like, it's like being in a video game. <laughs> so he was like, super. He just loved all this like stuff about it, like this this tactile stuff about it that you you can't get in that proscenium space as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Is there, like, have you dabbled in creating immersive theater, um, Miriam, and and how has that experience been?
2: Yeah, I myself have not produced any immersive theater, but I've worked, I have supported two theater companies that work in the immersive space, one in um, Boulder, Colorado, and one here in Seattle. Mm -hmm. I, like, production managed one and assistant directed and volunteered and helped paint a set once. And so I'm very familiar with the immersive theater world. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting because I love your nephew's reaction that it felt like a video game. Because, yeah, I mean, theater is an all-sensory, could be an all-sensory experience. I mean, I've been, I was at a show, it was not great. But in London years ago on the West End, the play itself was just not a good play. It was very boring. But they a woman, cooked, one of the actors cooked a full chicken on stage. There was a fully working kitchen with running water and a fridge. Well, the play took place in the 1700s, so I don't know if it was, you call that a fridge. But she ice cooked ice <laughs> yeah. cooked. The, the actor cooked a, like, roasted a chicken and mm-hmm. we could smell it in the audience mm-hmm. for this very boring two and a half hours. And if <laughs> I hadn't had that chicken, I don't know if I would have stayed for act two to see what happened. Wow! Um, But theater—wait, did you get to eat the chicken? No, and I don't even remember if the actor, if the characters, ate the chicken. So
0: they whole chicken every night, and then where does it go?
1: Well, I'm yeah, sure somebody eats a chicken,
2: you know. And it's also, like, what's the point of them having roasted the chicken? I don't know. This is why the play wasn't very good. I'm okay. not going to tell you what the play was. No, it, yeah. I mean, I you could probably Please. look
1: it up. But, um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty specific. But i the reason I ask is because I am currently writing what I think is just going to be a one act. Because I want it to take the length of how long it takes to cook particular dish but that figures into the plot of the play <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, That's cool. wow. and so i i would love and i actually have a couple of i have another piece that i'm like started writing that is through generate like three different time periods cooking the same dish um, oh, cool. and these are all filipino dishes and when I have read these pieces to to people, they're like, they're like, oh, you should do this as immersive theater and have people cooking it on stage. I'm like, that would be awesome. And, but I want people to eat it too. <laughs> like, like afterwards, you know, just like.
2: Th- but then you, you like it. run into like food safety issues. I know, so- I
1: know. I mean, what what I was thinking is that you don't have the thing that was cooked on stage be the thing that is serving the audience you know like oh, yeah. there's like a catering company or something you know that that cooks that but like just so people get literally a taste of
0: yeah I'm signing a waiver like
1: yeah that. that too yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you die
2: you don't yeah. ask for to be reimbursed for you yeah team. no
1: allergies <laughs> like you know yeah. because oh. i i also went to sweeney todd and off-Broadway um, in the pie shop that they did. Um, and it was, pardon my language, it was fucking amazing. Like, I mean, the show was amazing. The, uh, the, the script is amazing and the music, but um, it was Norm Lewis and Carolee Carmelo who are fantastic actors. Um, and and also, uh, oh shoot, what's his name? Uh, Matt Doyle, I think, um, who like one Tony for company just like a couple of years ago um so so yeah so we my my friend and I went and we we got like the pie beforehand because that was like like if you get the pie ticket then you get like the uh, like meat pie um, or veggie pie Yum. like my friend that's his but there it was just like a peak like a yep. pocket <laughs> but it had like a, a smear of like mash which was also lovely um but yeah you got to eat that before the show um so so yeah i i mean i'm you know i'm a fan of dinner theater
2: i suppose well <laughs> both, of these, both of these theaters that i've worked with and seen a lot of their shows both use food as part of their immersion wow. one, one has like a th- Oh gosh, I can't remember. Like a five course meal that's embedded in the story. So you sit at tables in the theater and the actors are happening all around you, and there's projections and there's, but they write the plays with service in mind. So they hire, like, the, the chef creates the meal and they hire servers along with the actors. It's all part of the same choreography. That's awesome. The other oh. theater in Boulder does something called Feeds where they, um, go to like basically farms and have like family style enormous tables and there's they're out here outside and there's music and there's story and there's food and the food service comes out at the right point in the song or whatever. And they'll have a theme. Like my favorite one I ever went to was fermentation. And so all the food was and drinks were fermented. And so was the scenes and the music. Like it all went around a food theme. Mm. What was the theater in Seattle that, did this? Well, they are on a bit of a break. so oh, they're okay. called Cafe Nordo. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, and in Boulder, it's the Catamounts, which is their yeah. tiny theater company. But they're my favorite. They just turned ten. They're my favorite theater. Oh, amazing! Oh, I um, that. Can I tell you a Sweeney Todd story? Because you were talking about. Please do. Things. Yeah. <laughs> this is my uh, my. Per- this is just about me. I'm just gonna be really um, all about me for a second. So when I was t- twenty maybe, I did a study abroad in London at the London Dramatic Academy, which was a, an acting conservatory for American study abroad students, but um, in London. And I was there for six months. And at break, uh, my friend and I traveled around the country and we went to York, England, which is just a lovely little city. And we saw a show and it was just whatever they had tickets for that night and it was Sweeney Todd. And I'm not a musical person. So I went kind of via dragging my feet and the theater in york is called york theater royal and it's an old stone medieval building and then half of it you know is like glass modern structure so it's a really cool space and we watched sweeney todd and i fell in love with it i was like oh now i understand the soundheim thing and like sweeney todd got it i'm on board and it blew my mind just the theatrics and everything and so the next morning my friend and i wake up and we have a train after breakfast to go back to London. And I get up really early and I wake her up and I'm like, Emily, I'll be back. I promise. And I just leave. And I walked to the theater and knocked on the admin door and some random, you know, some woman opened the door and she was like, yep. And I was like, hi, I saw a play here last night and I would like to work here. And she's like, what? And I have an American accent. I'm obviously, you know, not legally like able to work in the country. And I was just like, I really want to work at this theater. So can I give you my name and email? And she's just like, okay, like what are you doing? Anyway, my friend and I um, finish our vacation up and we go back to our acting school. And I'm standing in the office and there's a bunch of tutors, we called our teachers tutors, tutors standing around and they're like, what'd you all do for your spring break? And I'm like, I went to York and saw a play and then tried to get a job. And our fight director, the, the tutor who was teaching us stage combat, Richard heard this and he walks over and he's like the York theater Royal. I'm like, yeah. He's like, what do you mean? You're trying to get a job. I was like, I don't know, but I need to work at that theater. Like I I'll, I'll mop the floors. Like I just need to go back there. He's like, well, I'm the fight director for three musketeers this summer. They're huge summer show. And uh, yeah. He's like, you want to be a sword fighter in it? So I, after London moved to York for several months and trained and was a sword fighter in this like enormous show where all the actors came up from London. They were all West End actors who then, you know, go up to York for the summer to do essentially what they would consider a regional theater there. And I trained on the sword and played like six parts. And, like I was like a little boy. And then I was like an old inn wench. And then I was a I was a musketeer and then I was a huguenot. And I like kept getting, you know, I was just a sword fighter. So I kept dying and then I come back in a new costume. I was a sort of ball. Wow. Yeah. It was the most incredible experience. And I always say that that show, Sweeney Todd, is what made me realize that if you don't ask for what you want in life, like if you don't just be like, I want to do this thing, will you take me? That, like, Sweeney Todd showed me that you have to hustle. Like, if I Mm. hadn't fallen in love with it, with that one performance, I wouldn't have then lived in York. And that sort of set my life in the direction it went because then I went back to London the next year on a fellowship and worked in that office and, yeah, at that school. Mm. Wow.
0: So this feels like a nice segue actually, because you're, you're talking about like just, um, having the, you know, chutzpah to go and ask for what you want to do. And like, you know, I feel like that's solid advice all around, like recognize, pay attention to what you're really interested in and hold on to it and go and get it. Um, and you're fostering some of those same feelings in ScribLab now. You're, you're really fostering this um, largely online community of people who are writing together and, and doing plays and, and like sci-fi and all kinds of things, right? So how did um, the idea for ScribLab come about? And what sorts of things are you working on now with ScribLab that you're really excited to share, like that you're really stoked about?
2: I mean, Scrib Lab is a direct outcome of Goddard. Um, I graduated Goddard in January 2021. I'm one of the pandemic babies. And after graduation or a little bit before, I was like, cool, I'm graduating and not in person. I haven't been in person in a couple of semesters. How am I going to quote unquote join the writing community? Because I don't feel like I'm part of the writing community because like we all went online. I'm not flying to Vermont every six months. And I'm also a playwright. And that's a little bit, it's been a little bit difficult to be one of the few playwrights when, you know, my friends at Goddard are memoirs and novelists. And so how do I join a playwriting community or a writing community and a playwriting community? And I'm in Seattle where, the, where Goddard isn't. So like, how do I meet the writers here? And I just realized that if I didn't create the space, I wasn't, I needed to create the space to bring the community to me. It was a bit of a selfish act. Um, so I really started Scribblab as a way to just connect. Um, we're about two and a half years old now. I've it's It's been really an interesting and a fun journey. I have supported literally just hundreds and hundreds of writers. I've had over two dozen instructors work with me on various things. Um,
0: including me, quick Quick plug, Yeah, uh, yeah Sam's uh, face is um, on Scriplab. My <laughs> 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 face. Um, uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to say, quick plug, Scribblab is really um, a joy to work with. So if you have like a workshop idea or even like a book club or something that you want to share with others, um, reach out to Miriam through Scriplab and, and say, I want to lead this thing because um, my experiences have all been super duper positive so far.
2: Thanks, Sam. Sam led this awesome book club about horror, with horror books last year. It was like a four-part series, and then two of the authors came and surprised him. And showed <laughs> oh my god! That's amazing! It was so
0: cool. Uh, Linda Addison came, and, and Jeff Strand stopped by. Some uh, big names in the horror community. I mm. couldn't believe that they were both there. They were uh. both super nice. Um, and it was cool. It was a good to, excuse to, like, uh, read some horror that I hadn't before. Um, like I have had this one collection of Linda Addison's poetry for a while, but I hadn't gotten a chance to read. And so I was like, well, let me just build a club around these like works that I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from people that I've met and enjoy and I want to read these. And so it was a nice excuse to do some reading that I wanted to do and to share it with other people. And the fact that they that those actual authors came was just like icing on the cake. It was a lot mm-hmm. of fun. So I'm hoping to do something again like that soon um, when I find the, the bandwidth for it. But mm-hmm. well, we'll see. Fingers fink, crossed. But anyway, that no. was, that's my quick plug.
1: Can, wow. can both of you talk a little bit about what ScribLab offers to the casual writer, the professional
2: writer, all of that good stuff? Yeah, Scriblab is predominantly online, all free to attend labs. And I call them labs, but that's a mixture of like one-off workshops, um, multi-session classes, book readings. So we've um, had Sam and several other Goddard alum who published a book come and read from their.
0: Yeah, Greg novels. was there. Um, we just interviewed Greg yesterday. Um, oh. And uh, he is doing great. He looks great. So handsome. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I <laughs> think he's like a year older than me, oh. um, so we were like the two. I, I felt like there were, a, I guess, a couple of young guys there because Dylan was there, sort of in our mm-hmm. cohort as well. Um, Greg has read with Scribblab uh-huh. um, and Amy. Yeah. Oh, Amy. And, and Amy yeah. Right.
1: We we yeah. interviewed her last year, right?
0: Yes. Um. Uh. A- Amy S. Cutler has a new book coming out from. Black Rose Publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should check it out. Her first book is called A Shadow of Love. Um, and it's a nice little ghost love story. And that came out last summer. Mm-hmm. So you can get that now. And then when you're buying that, look into what her new one is called. It's titled Very <laughs> Love. Of
1: <laughs> so Miriam, how have you found like the, the uh, Scrib Lab? Like how uh, you started it to kind of enter into and create a community of writers. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you found that to be like, did, does it feel like you've been fulfilling that purpose for yourself?
2: Yeah, I really think so. Um, yeah. Like I said, there's just hundreds of people on the mailing list or more than hundreds. And um I work with Goddard students. Um, I've supported, gosh, probably almost at least 15 students who are in their G3 doing their teaching practicum. I've hosted their teaching practicums. Oh, wow. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it's been really cool. And on my current roster of instructors, a a bunch of them came from, they were Goddard students who did their teaching practicum through me. And then after they graduated, said, hey, can I start leading some um, one-off workshops and classes? So it's been really nice. It's, you know, kept me really connected to the Goddard community. Mm-hmm. Um, and after about two years, so at the beginning of this past year, 2023, I was working full-time um, in corporate HR, mm-hmm. and I just went through a major spinal surgery. And as I was recovering from surgery and returning to my full-time job and trying to figure out what the next step of Scrib Lab is as it entered its third year. I started to realize that, like, I didn't want to put all my time and energy and resources towards corporate HR. Oh, I'm yeah. Trying to, <laughs> I mean, I'm healing my body and my mind after this major life-changing surgery. And, like, it just made me reprioritize what I want out of life. So in February, I quit my job. And so I could focus on Scrib Lab and my own playwriting um, full time. and. It's been really an interesting six months since then, six-ish months. Um, all of the instructors I work with, like Sam, they lead poetry and creative narrative and fiction and horror and speculative fiction workshops and classes. And I lead playwriting. And I started to realize that the world is obviously opening up a lot more post, post-ish, um, we could say post-COVID. and. I want to start having more in-person things, but I'm 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 really only equipped to talk about playwriting. I'm not a novelist, I'm not an essayist. So I've started having some in-person events here in Seattle. And um, since June, I had a really big event in June that brought about 45 local playwrights together to talk about the state of our, the current state of our, our theater and playwriting community. Just since then, in the last couple months, I can't even tell you how many meetings I've been in with local arts leaders and other playwrights and um, community organizers to talk about Seattle area programming and where the gaps are in our playwriting community and how possibly Scribblab or me or me and a coalition of others can fill in some of those gaps. So I'm doing that work as well as you know, ScribLab has several recurring, monthly recurring labs. We have open writing sessions and playwriting sessions. And I have a playwriting group that we lead. Things that occur every month, I'm leading all of those, along with supporting people like Sam and the other instructors who are leading poetry and narrative writing um, labs through ScribLab. So it's it's just very busy at the moment. And we are, or I am trying very hard to figure out the next step are because I always say Screw has a terrible business model. Everything is free for everyone to attend, but I try my hardest to pay. Well, not even try my hardest. to do pay all of the instructors to lead. I believe strongly that artists and leaders should be paid for their time and energy. And um, But it's difficult. The mission is to keep writing accessible to anyone who wants to show up. So how do you do that when it's When there's no income, but there's outcome. (laughs) Yeah. is just figuring out a sustainable future model. Sure.
1: Sure. I mean, it is, I was, I was on the website last night. I almost signed up for like an open lab (laughs) or like open writing session, Mm -hmm. I think, because you do those, um, I think monthly, right. Mm -hmm. Um, where, um, I, I do this virtual cafe with. With people that I I started with over the pandemic, um, where we would check in and then and then write or do whatever productivity thing that we were trying to do, and then check in again at the end. And it feels like that's a f- similar format uh, to this open. Uh, what is it called exactly? Open lab or open uh, the writing lab? The writing lab. Thank you. But I'll say like the virtual cafe has kind of it, it's hit or miss now because people are busy and doing stuff international. And also we become like super close, like over these like few years, like we started, I mean, at the in 2020. And mm. so our check-ins get a little long because <laughs> so, like, mm. we're just chatting. But but I I found those to be incredibly productive and like healthy for me to have dedicated writing time because I'm not going to do it for myself all the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So, so I was excited to see that and I will probably sign up for that. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, the, it, the website for ScribLab has just so many resources for craft and for the business of writing, so do, like you said that what you're looking for for Scriblab in the future is definitely a sustainable model whether that's through grant writing or grant funding which is a full-time job. <laughs> mm-hmm. What else do you want for Scriblab in the future as far as like the programming goes?
2: Yeah, I'd like to grow out I think Scriblab's at a place where it's naturally starting to have two divisions. There's the online the Zoom, the all free um, labs, the classes and workshops and other sessions um, that are focused on writing of all genres, predominantly poetry and fiction and other narrative forms. And then there's the playwriting side. I think that's just because of me and my own interests and because I live in Seattle. So naturally if I have in-person events, it's focused towards the local community here. So, Screw Lab's kind of at an interesting spot where I'm starting. My energy is definitely split. How do I continue growing um, and supporting the community with the free writing classes that I think are pretty good, pretty high um, caliber? And then also starting to really work with the local playwriting community in Seattle for programming and opportunities here and partnering with local institutions. So, In a really practical way, I think what the next step for me is looking for help. I'm realizing you can't... I mean, not realizing. I know you can't do everything alone. And screw up's at a point where we're two and a half years old and I can't support both sides equally. It's just... It's a full-time job. As you said, too, looking for grants is totally a full-time job. Um, So I've met someone recently who's going to help me a little bit couple hours a week on grant research and we're looking for corporate sponsorship right now so Mm -hmm. if anybody out there wants to throw a couple thousand our way and sponsor a month of writing that would be awesome yeah um and in a really practical sense i need to figure out how to make a sustainable living for myself um i do pay my instructors for their time to lead i started paying myself this year out of everybody telling me I had to and I stopped paying myself because I I just um it's hard it's really hard to to take the little bit of donations and grants that we do have and we're very lucky we have a strong donation base but it's not enough to support you know an admin wage uh for myself and so I've stopped Offering myself stipends and I'm trying to just figure out what my next steps are. You know, the best thing about my corporate HR job was the salary. <laughs> the worst part was the corporate HR part. <laughs> and Leaving it has made me such a happier person. And I have so much more time to focus on my individual playwriting and leading ScribLab. But unfortunately, when you leave a job, they stop paying you. And so my. Rude. (laughs) And, you know, um, having a salary the first two years, I could also be my own anonymous donor. And so I've also sadly not been able to donate to my own organization. And the the, the philosophy around Screw Lab, the really, at the end of the day, I always say it's all about community and accountability. I'm holding space for us to show up for ourselves and others. Right, So you can come to an open writing session like the Monthly Writing Lab. You can come to Maria Burns' um, fairy tale series. She leads these great workshops on fairy tales. You can come to one of my playwriting classes, et cetera. And you're there because you want to learn, you want to do, you want to experiment, you want to ask, all that great stuff. And because you want to show up for other people who want to do and learn and experiment. And it's a, it's a community organization almost more than it is a writing organization. Mm-hmm. And... What's so lovely about that is the connections you make and the accountability you have for one another and the joy that we find in meeting and then going off on our own and writing and then coming back and sharing. And also, it is an organization and and to make it sustainable, fortunately or unfortunately, it needs funding. And so I'm trying to learn how to to step up as a community organizer here in Seattle, and then with ScribLab Online, and hold those spaces, and also make sure that there's a healthy future. Um, And so I'm getting better at the ask, you know, asking people for money, but I'm not a... Coming from corporate HR, I can talk about engagement and empowerment and community all day long, but I don't really quite know how to navigate the business part of the business. And at two and a half years, I'm realizing... That's, it, this is the right time for growth, business growth. And like, you know, that's where my, my understanding sort of wanes. So if anyone out there wants to become a corporate sponsor or a business partner. <laughs> Great. Great. Well, so, I mean, we'll put the
1: ask in and see what yeah. happens for sure.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, do you have anything in particular coming up, either for ScribLab or in your personal work that you want to plug?
2: we'll see. I'm currently trying to organize a couple of, for everyone who's in Seattle, a couple of in-person events this fall. We have a monthly workshop called the Play Lab, which is for playwrights every month to come online and share, you know, 20 to 40 minutes of a piece they're working on and then receive feedback. There will be an in-person version starting in September. So I'm really excited for anyone in the Seattle area to... um, come in in person and I'm going to have wine and cheese. So if you like cheese and plays, that'll be that. And wine. And And wine. Yeah. And a bunch of playwrights and myself have just started what we're calling for now the Seattle Playwriting Coalition. And we've had one big launch meeting and we'll have more and hopefully a fundraising event this fall or networking event. So that's coming up soon. And then, um, the only thing to plug up for myself as an individual is I'm working very hard on play. And when it's done, it's going to be amazing. So <laughs> I'm just plugging a future amazing play for people okay. to see
1: and produce. Awesome. Yeah, mark it on your
0: calendars. <laughs> so, yeah,
1: future amazing play. <laughs> and I would like to, you know, put in, a, you know, just a, an ask for a composer and librettist for Miriam to work with so she can write her opera.
0: <laughs> yeah. Amen.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes. That would be
2: yeah um, amazing.
0: Yeah. Uh, where can people find you online?
2: Um you can find my writing org at org, and you can find me at M-I-R-B-C-T, so mirror dot com. That's my playwriting website. And um, at the advice of the co-executive director of the Dramatist Guild, mm-hmm. who read some of my or listened to me at a reading of one of my plays and said, I um, I struggle to get my plays produced because they are so non-unconventional. And he said to me after listening to me read out loud, he said, I don't think your plays are weird and I don't think that they don't have a space in the contemporary American theater I think literary managers, sorry everybody, they don't know how to read your plays. He said, I think it's a reading problem. So I went mm-hmm. on my website and you can now listen to me reading. Mm-hmm. I did I have audio files of the first, I don't know, ten minutes of each of my major plays. So oh, that so when they're written in verse, you can hear how I read them and, and not just have to rely on the text on the page.
1: Thank you so much oh for goodness. being with us today, yeah, this was this was so lovely.
2: Fun. Well, thank both of you so much. It's really nice. Um Sometimes it's just nice to be asked about yourself. Oh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Life is hard. It's been a hard couple of years for the world. And I just thank the two of you so much for just taking your time to investigate other people's stories. It's just a, mm-hmm. such a just lo- lovely little thing to do. Yeah, it's,
0: it's well, you know, I, it's true that like so many people are so anxious these days that we're all in our own heads and. Can feel very lonely navigating that space because you're just in your own head, and so when mm-hmm. people start asking you what's going on in your head, that's always feels nice. So I'm happy to share that you know at least an hour at a time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, and I just want to tell everyone the uh, the funny thing about all this is that a couple months ago I interviewed Sam, oh. and his interview was on my website. Right. Yeah, and we yes. talked about Sam being a writer and his. The joy he finds in telling stories.
0: That's so true. Um, You can check that out. Also, as long as we're plugging interviews, I did an interview with um, a buddy of mine named Mike, whose Instagram is sweet truth. I think it's a, it's a white man in a beard laughing. So if you search sweet truth, that's (laughs) the image. Um, But we, we walked around, um, you know, the Hudson River has all these old estates um, along the riverside. And so we walked around one of those and talked about writing and stuff and it's like almost two hours long so if you really want to hear me talk wow. <laughs> check out my uh like 12 minute interview on script lab and then the two hour interview on <laughs> sweet truth you'll really be sick of me by the end of <laughs> is
1: Sweet truth, is it so the interview is hosted on his instagram
0: Um, it's on his YouTube. um, YouTube. I think there's some clips of it on his Instagram and you can get to his YouTube from the Instagram, but it's just, it's just him. Um, you know, he, he does the series where he walks around places in the Hudson Valley and shares Mm -hmm. his thoughts on life and creativity and stuff. Um, and, uh, so I had a conversation with him on like an episode of that. I think he's doing another one with a friend of his who's like a yoga instructor, so some some fun stuff. As long as we're plugging stuff, that's that's my interview plug.
2: <laughs> right? <laughs> I
1: love it. Thank you but so anyway, much, everybody. Yeah, much. And
2: uh,
1: I can't wait to see one of your plays someday, Miriam. Um, I would, <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> and to meet you in person.
2: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you work with a theater company in New York. Tell them I have an amazing play coming. <laughs> amazing. I love <laughs> Any it. Any minute
1: now. Yeah. I'm
2: like, oh, Broadway.
1: <laughs> amazing. Awesome. Thank awesome. you so much. Have right, a, great a great day, day everybody. Day. Bye. 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 This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Association. It is produced and edited by Amanda Faye Laxon. To listen to past episodes, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to Goddard in the World in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.